climate change, poverty, mental health, young people and adults face a world of constant change. It's the connections we make, innovations and education that come together to help us make a difference. Welcome to the power of young people to change the world. In this program, we bring together leaders that share stories designed to inspire you to serve, learn, and change the world. Now, here's your host, Amy Muirs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to The Power of Young People to Change the World. I'm your host, Amy Muirs, and I'll be here every Thursday on Voice America Empowerment Radio to explore how young people are using their ideas, creativity, and passion to shape a better world, and how educators can utilize the power of service learning to redesign education. Each show, you're going to hear stories about and from young people who are at the forefront of change. They're young people who are making the world a better place right now. They're tackling issues like climate change, social justice, hunger, education equity, which coincidentally is our topic of today. I truly hope that you find value and inspiration in the show. And if you do, I hope that you'll share this podcast with your colleagues and friends. And if you're an innovative young person who's changing the world or an adult who's passionate about engaging young people as change makers, you can contact me via email at info, I-N-F-O, at nylc.org, and we just might decide to have you on the show with us. Um, today, um, we're going to talk to a young change maker, Carmen Lopez Villamil. Carmen's a senior at Beacon High School, where she and her peers are tackling education equity and youth justice in New York public schools. Before we talk to Carmen and dig into that topic of education equity, and since this is my first show, I wanted to share a little bit about myself and the National Youth Leadership Council. So I've been with NYLC for 18 years. Sometimes that's a little hard to believe. Um, the last five of those, I've, it's been as CEO. Um, because of my work with this organization, I've had this amazing opportunity to meet people who are passionate about making the world a better place. I've met Nobel laureates, former presidents, some other amazing leaders. But the people who've really impacted me the most truly are those young people that I've met who are tackling some of our world's most challenging issues. Some of them have created their own nonprofits, but many are students like Carmen who understand that we can't just sit quietly on the sidelines. They know we need to engage in our communities to make meaningful change happen now. For many of these students, um, their first opportunity to serve came through a service learning experience. So service learning, it's this experiential form of education where students take action on a community or global issue while they're meeting learning objectives. So a great example of this is the Wetland Watchers Program in St. Charles Parish, Louisiana. There's uh, middle school science students are preserving the spillway along the Gulf Coast while they're learning about native plants, animals, their earth science standards. So students aren't only cleaning a park, planting trees, um, cleaning the spillways, they're learning while they serve. And the National Youth Leadership Leadership Council, NYLC, um, we've been a leader in service learning for nearly 40 years. And our mission is to create a more just, sustainable, and peaceful world with young people, their schools, and communities through service learning. 
It's really that belief in the voice and contribution of all young people, and I underscore all young people, that really drew me to NYLC and the reason that I that our work remains as relevant today as it was when we were first founded. One of our programs, um, Youth for Education, which um, Carmen is um, a part of, was created by our youth, by one of our youth advisory councils more than a decade ago. Um, they said at that time that education equity was one of the biggest challenges facing young people. Here we are today, over a decade later, and we're still faced with so many of those same challenges. And I really think it's important to revisit a few of the milestones in U.S. history because education inequality has deep roots in our U.S. education school system. So I want to look back before we look forward. Um, I think we should start with the fact that the United States is the only country known to have prohibited the education of the enslaved population. So during the era of slavery in the U.S., the education of African Americans was discouraged and eventually made illegal um, in most Southern states. So it was in 1896, so 33 years after the freeing of the slaves, that the Supreme Court authorized I underscore authorized segregation and Plessy versus Ferguson. So they found that Louisiana's separate but equal law was constitutional. Um, and that was a ruling that was really built on the notion of white supremacy and black inferiority. Um, it provided legal justification for Jim Crow laws. So it wasn't until 1954 I skipped from 1896 all the way to 1954 that the Supreme Court finally overturned um, Plessy versus Ferguson in the Brown versus Board of Education case and declared that separate schools are inherently unequal. Um, and it was three years after that um, that I know in history books we see, have seen photos of or read about um, the Little Rock, Arkansas public schools um, when they were forced to integrate and um, the fact that federal troops had to be sent in by President Eisenhower. Um, so three years even after Brown versus Board of Education, we're still using our federal, federal troops to enforce um, the desegregation of our schools. And then we jump 10 years later to the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964 that promoted the desegregation of public schools and gave the U.S. Attorney General um, authorization to enforce the act. So although many of us, you know, we've learned the historical struggles to desegregate schools in our history class and things like that, um, we really don't discuss what segregation looks like currently in our school systems. Our education is still divided along color lines. Um, there's a report from Brookings that states about two thirds of the minority students still attend schools that are predominantly minority. So many of those are located in our urban centers or central cities um, and they're funded well below their neighboring suburban districts. So school districts are often segregated by income which has intensified the educational gaps between rich and poor students and between white students and students of color. 
Across the board, we see um, schools serving a greater number of students of color have significantly fewer resources, from qualified teachers to curriculum offerings like service learning. So those um, schools serving mostly white students have a greater abundance of resources. So this, along with so many other um, factors, really contribute to that growing opportunity gap. Some still call it the achievement gap. Um, we're going to refer to it as the opportunity gap here. And of course, the pandemic has really demonstrated just how wide that, give, that gap is for so many students, especially our students of color. Um, there was a, a report recently from McKinsey and Company that said students who came into the pandemic with the fewest academic opportunities um, are on track to exit with the greatest learning loss. So things like remote learning, lack of live teacher contact are just a couple of the factors, contributors to that. But if current trends really continue, white students may be four to six months behind in subjects like math, but our students of color are most likely to be six to 12 months behind. So a whole grade um, year behind um, where our white students are at. So in addition to learning loss, many of our students have lost their part-time jobs due to the pandemic. Um, it's money needed to help support their families. In most states, high school students are not eligible for unemployment benefits, even when they have a steady job. So youth unemployment um, is still nearly double that of the general U.S. population. So the pandemic's taking a dis disappropriate toll on our youth labor. Um, and that includes many young people of color who are dependent on that income for their families. So these implications are really devastating to our young pe people, whether you're looking at the economic impacts, the social impacts, the data doesn't really lie, education equity, it's hurting all of us. So the students at Beacon High School um, it's a prestigious school in New York City. They decided to tackle one of the causes of education inequity in their own community, school admissions policies. Um, Beacon's high school student population is about half white, which is really quite different than most of New York City's public school system, which is nearly 70% black and Hispanic. So we should note that Beacon is not a specialized high school. It doesn't have any admissions test, but it does have a highly competitive, competitive admissions process. So that requires students to assemble a portfolio of middle school work, admission essays. It has high standardized test, cord, test scores requirements and grades. And it is one of the most selective schools in New York. Um, in 2018, um, they stated that they had about 5,800 applications for the 369th grade seats. So it was the admission policies that led to the more than 300 Beacon High School students that led them to walk out in a student-led strike in 2019 to the chance of end Jim Crow and education is a right, not just for the rich and white. So Joining me today to share her journey of, ch of change is Carmen Lopez Villamil. Carmen's a senior at Beacon High School in New York. Um, she works on education equity advocacy um, at Teens Take Charge and 
co-leads its new youth employment policy initiative, Project 1424, which I'm excited to learn more about. I should also mention that Carmen's a member of NYLC's Youth Advisory Council and leading our Youth for Education program focused on empowering young people to tackle education inequality through service learning. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more about what's happening um, with Carmen in her school and the role that she's playing to make change, including, again, that new youth employment project. But we're going to take a brief pause. And when we return, we're going to hear from Carmen. So please stay with us on the power of young people to change the world, Voice America Empowerment Radio. And we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. For nearly 40 years, the Minnesota-based National Youth Leadership Council has worked globally to transform classrooms, empower teachers, and captivate students by leading the way in providing high-quality, dynamic service learning content to school districts, classrooms, after-school programs, and everything in between. NYLC accelerates student achievement by strengthening academic, civic, and character outcomes through service learning. They tap into the passion, creativity, and ingenuity of all young people to make meaningful change happen. NYLC offers a variety of paths to reach service learning excellence through membership, its annual spring national service learning conference, customized professional development, tools, resources, and soon to be released, Getting Started in Service Learning, a book designed for teachers ready to lead the way to address real world issues with all young people, inspiring them to serve, learn, change the world. Visit nylc.org to learn more today. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are listening to The Power of Young People to Change the World with Amy Muirs. To find out more about Amy and the National Youth Leadership Council, please visit nylc.org. Now back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to The Power of Young People to Change the World. Um, we're here with Carmen Lopez Villamil. Again, Carmen's a senior at Beacon High School in New York City. She's an active leader with Teens Take Charge and the National Youth Leadership Council. So, Carmen, um, I would love to hear a little bit about yourself. Kind of, what's your story? Sure, yeah. Um, briefly, I'm Carmen, 17 years old. Um, from Brooklyn, lived here all my life. And I think that my passion for education equity um, and particularly through the lens of service learning comes from probably in large part from my parents, lovely people, um, really supportive of education and youth empowerment. But really, I think elementary school was where it started for me, which is kind of mind boggling just because it means that even education at a very young age has a huge impact on people. Um, so for me, I went to a school that was sort of nestled between two highly segregated neighborhoods. Red Hook has a bunch of housing projects. It's predominantly black and brown. And then there's Carroll Gardens, which is one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Brooklyn. It's almost completely white, um, gentrified a long time ago. So what that means is, is that my school was this sort of 
pilot called the Brooklyn New School um, that tried to integrate students. Not the first time it's been done. Um, I think, right, obviously we tried as a nation in the 60s and the 70s. But since then, and particularly in New York City, our schools have remained deeply segregated. Um, We heard about that a little bit too before. But what this school tried to do was use weighted admissions methods to try to create a diverse body of students racially, socioeconomically, and academically. Um, At that age, I don't know how much diversity there can be academically just because, you know, like sorting students at that age is absurd. But what it meant for me was that I was in a diverse community um, where teachers were really intentional about being culturally responsive, where we didn't take tests and everything was project-based, where I think every year we did two or three service learning projects. So that I felt like I had a voice in my education, that I had something to say about the world. I could have an opinion and then we could do something about it as a community. Um, So I think for me and most of my peers at that age, it was really empowering to learn about other people and learn about the world around us. Um, So that's sort of, I think, where this started fundamentally for me. That's amazing that you had those experiences um, at such a young age and the fact that they're so impactful. So as you transitioned to high school, um, what was that experience like? Yeah, um, I expected it to be utopic. Like I expected a perfect school. um, And in many ways it was. I think my school has a ton of resources, a ton of support because it concentrates sort of the wealthiest and the whitest of New York City's public school system. Um, So that means that we have access to arts and famous public figures. We have access to athletics and, you know, an abundance of opportunities that I couldn't have imagined, which I have really enjoyed. But even within Beacon, that was only available to the most privileged of our students. And that is not intentional, I don't think. I think our administration and our principal at the time wanted our school um, to be equal. I think most people will say that they do, but there are a sequence of policies, a sequence of policies at every level um, from the admissions to sort of how classes are chosen and how opportunities are shared that create segregation even internally. So for me, a white passing girl, like school was great. Beacon was fun. Um, but it was also extremely problematic. Also Hispanic, which meant that for me and a lot of my friends, it was really hard being in a school with a bunch of white people, um, people who had gone to segregated schools their entire lives, which means that just, I think from a very young age, people haven't learned to interact with one another. Um, they're very different cultural norms, which isn't to say that we can't integrate. It means that we have to integrate sooner um, and more intentionally. So Beacon could be considered sort of ideal, but in reality for most students of color, it's sort of a horrible experience, could be traumatic. Um, And so that's, that's why we felt that we had to do something, right? Not only on the level of our school, but systemically, like this is not something that could change just by talking to our teachers or, you know, rallying around one experience, but really we had to change sort of how the entire school system functions. So I'm curious, how 
How did you convince other students that this this was something that needed to be addressed? Um, how did you get the students who didn't see the privilege that they had or the um, the segregation that was happening? Um, how did you get them on board? I think at the beginning it was sort of about storytelling, which I have always underestimated, um, maybe just because I'm not a good creative writer, but really talking about what has happened at Beacon um, for me and for a lot of my friends was important. Just having a forum where we were all listened to, um, valued, and even I, like my experiences haven't been that horrible, but creating a space where like anyone can come talk about what's happened to them, I think that was really important just because privilege is so invisible for so many people. You know, if you have it, you don't know that you do. Um, Or you're living in a world where you don't realize that sort of the problems of segregation and racism and white supremacy um, exist and that you may be perpetuating them. So I think a huge part of it was just talking about what had happened, um, what had been happening for years. And then I think another part was just saying that like we don't need to wait for people with privilege to get on board to do this mm-hmm. um, I think there are plenty who did realize um, or who had known and who who said that we really did need to do something and in those cases sort of leverage their privilege whether it was economic or racial or social to sort of support this cause um, but if people aren't recognizing their privilege it's not necessary to wait for them Very well said. Very well said. I'm curious, um, you referenced um, teachers, but did you take the concerns to the teachers, the administration, kind of what was their response um, to young people stepping up and saying, we don't like what's happening here? Yeah, I think there were probably a few teachers who people had gone to before, um, who people could trust with like their individual experiences but it was sort of this act of bringing them all together and saying again that this is not like one problem that affects one individual or that there's one perpetrator, but that it's a systemic problem, right? The system is created so that this happens to us. Um, And so the reaction to that for many, I think was really supportive. Um, I think a lot of teachers realized that they had been perpetuating these systems and these policies that are actually really inequitable. whether it's leaving out certain students or disadvantaging them through various through various policies. Um, and then there were a bunch who felt blamed and rejected that, you know? And I think that was really difficult because we, we striked, we walked out. Um, we said that we weren't going to go to school if it wasn't going to be equitable and if we weren't going to be treated fairly and have a voice in our education. And we went to our principal to ask her, like, just to let her know, really, we were like, we're going to walk out. Um, and she she refused. She said this was unacceptable, which, again, is the nature of protest. Probably made it more powerful. But it was really interesting to see this person who is progressive, who I think cares about equity and anti-racism, fail to acknowledge that what she had been doing for years was actually hurting students of color. It's always a challenge when adults are faced with their own um, their own inability to respond, and in the um, and when young people are pointing out things that they 
don't often reflect on. Um, so you went from the safe space, like creating that narrative, sharing um, with each other as the student body to striking. How did that happen? What was the organizing behind that? How did you, how did you get 300 students to say, yes, this is what we're doing? Ooh. Um, yeah, I think this was a conversation that, again, wasn't just happening at Beacon, but was happening across the city. Um, so in predominantly white schools, it was a lot of students of color saying, this is unacceptable. Like the way that we've been treated in this school is unacceptable. It's unequal. It's inequitable. Um, and then there were a bunch of students in black and brown schools who are realizing that this isn't the way education should look because there's such a disparity in resources and opportunities, but just based purely on race and socioeconomic status. Um, so I think over the past few years, I'm hesitant to credit anyone with this, but there has been a sort of realization among students that this is unfair and that we have a unique power to do something about it. So Teen Stake Charge is sort of an outgrowth of that realization, which again, started with storytelling, thinking about what education should look like, what we deserve, um, and has turned into sort of this policy-making body um, that also does testimonies and fun events. So I think like it's been wonderful to be a part of that, but bringing all of those students together from across the city, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, for me, created this center where we could talk about what the system looked like more comprehensively instead of through my own educational lens, like what I've experienced. Um, so really these strikes were happening across the city on a weekly basis. So our strike was on some one day in December, a Monday, third period, we walked out. But the week before, another school had walked out and the week after another school did. So for me, this was a citywide movement. How we got it to work in New York City, particularly, or for Beacon, um, was two weeks before we started a group chat. We said, we're going to do this. Um, <laughs> we gathered a bunch of people together. I think we printed maybe 500 flyers and just handed them out the morning of. We got to school two hours early and handed them out as people walked in. Um, and then somehow we got someone to domineer the loudspeaker. Forgot how we did that. But that was helpful. We had someone say, okay, we're walking out now. Um, and within those two weeks of organizing, I think I had maybe 50 to 100 conversations with people just about their experiences. Like, what, what have you experienced before Beacon and then at Beacon? Um, what does that say about your privilege and your responsibility to others? Um, and yeah, again, there were people who we couldn't convince and who, had, at the end of the day, we don't need to convince. I think there were enough people, 300, who said, like, this is something I believe in. This is something we really need. Who decided to walk out on that day. Um, and that was, that was a fun process. And I think a really important one just because it happened at Beacon, which means there were a bunch of individual sort of revelations about race and privilege um, and inequality, but also that this was happening on a larger scale. So this is sort of a bigger movement. It's pretty phenomenal that... There was coordination across New York public schools um, that young people are coming together to tackle this issue, to stand up together to challenge adult assumptions, adult um, adult systems, um, 
And so I'm excited um, to continue our conversation, but we're going to take another quick break. And again, when we come back, we'll, um, we'll continue our conversation with Carmen. So stay with me. We're um, the power of young people to change the world on Voice America Radio. And we'll be right back after these messages. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. For nearly 40 years, the Minnesota-based National Youth Leadership Council has worked globally to transform classrooms, empower teachers, and captivate students by leading the way in providing high-quality, dynamic service learning content to school districts, classrooms, after-school programs, and everything in between. NYLC accelerates student achievement by strengthening academic, civic, and character outcomes through service learning. They tap into the passion, creativity, and ingenuity of all young people to make meaningful change happen. NYLC offers a variety of paths to reach service learning excellence through membership, its annual spring national service learning conference, customized professional development, tools, resources, and soon to be released, Getting Started in Service Learning, a book designed for teachers ready to lead the way to address real-world issues with all young people, inspiring them to serve, learn, change the world. Visit nylc.org to learn more today. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. listening to the power of young people to change the world with Amy Muirs. To find out more about Amy and the National Youth Leadership Council, please visit nylc.org. Now back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Um, if you're just joining us, um, I'm here with Carmen Lopez Villamil. Again, Carmen's a senior at Beacon High School in New York City. She's an active leader with Teens Take Charge and the National Youth Leadership Council. And we're discussing education equity and youth justice. So, Carmen, thanks for being here again. Um, I'd love to jump back into our conversation and maybe, so we were talking about the, um, the strikes that happened um, with young people walking out across New York City, um, challenging um, the systems of uh, admissions um, policies within New York public, public schools, the, um, the inequity of what was ha- what's happening in the school systems. And once those strikes happened, what happened when you had the attention of those adults? Um, kind of what were the challenges and maybe share what positive adult allies um, look like with us? Yeah, um, I think the most direct reactions we got were only after we got press attention, which I think is just a really important part of youth activism um, and activism generally that like leveraging the media was maybe the only thing that did anything. It reaffirmed that we had power um, because it put pressure on the adults who have control over our system. So within our school, um, that meant that 
teachers thought that they individually had to do better, which I think is important. You know, teachers should be really intentional about how they teach um, and interact with students and value youth voice in their classrooms. But I think more importantly, it's about the systems and the policies that they create. So it's about like firm homework deadlines. That's inequitable or participation points. I think that's inequitable. So I think that was, that was a big revelation that a lot of teachers had. More importantly for us at Beacon, I think the principal realized that the admission screens that she'd employed for years under the justification that, you know, they brought the best students to Beacon or the most curious or intellectually interested students, which in some world may be true, but in this case really served to segregate our schools um, and weed out students of color who were applying. So I think she realized that they had to change, Um, not immediately, but what it did was created, this strike in particular, created a student leadership body of our school, um, which created recommendations about admissions policies, about culturally responsive education, and how our school should function, which I think every school should sort of have as a baseline, some sort of youth leadership body with real power um, over how the school operates. But I think that was important just because it signaled to her that we had a voice, we knew what was happening, um, and that we were willing to fight for a change. And then on the city level, adults were irresponsive. I think it's easy to ignore young people because it's hard for us to organize. Like we age out of being young, we cycle through schools pretty quickly. Um, which means that we never have we never have a long time to hold adults accountable, nor do we have a forum to do it. So it was easy for the mayor, the mayor's office, to ignore what we were doing and what we were saying. So we had to bring it to him. We went to the offices of the Department of Education called the Tweed Building, um, and we striked on the steps. We tweeted at him. That was a useful tactic. Um, and eventually... We heard from Department of Education officials, people who run our school system, that they were motivated to change our system because we were saying that we needed something different. Um, And so I think for many adults, from what I've heard, it's really easy to sort of just operate within the status quo, to just keep the system running because it's so hard to just do that. Um, But I think the fun thing about being a young person, the important thing about it is that we can push for more than that. I really believe that our school system can operate more equitably and in a more informed way um, than it is right now. And so I think that was maybe inspiring for some people who really run our system. Ideally, it would actually create some youth governing bodies that are more long-term and have a more um, active role in what school policies look like. That's great. Um, it's interesting that it's it took media attention to really get movement from adults, um, but we know um, we know adults tend to fear change. Um, we do get complacent in um, in what we know, and it takes young people. Young people have been at the forefront of change throughout history, right? It's t- it's taken young people standing up and saying, "No, we can do this better. We can we we should be doing this differently." 
you know, a lot of this occurred um, pre-pandemic, right? Um, so I'm curious about any changes you've seen since then, um, kind of what have you seen? What changes um, have occurred um, since the pandemic has kind of it shifted what education looks like right now? Yeah, I think a big thing is that the pandemic has just exacerbated everything that education equity is, right? So these systems that never made sense, screening out students by grades or creating separate programs for some students um, that create a segregated system by race and class, they only like make less sense now, right? So it's impossible to administer a test or to, to say that grades are an expression of a student's worth. Like that is completely absurd at any time. Um, but particularly throughout the pandemic, it's become sort of not even an argument you can make anymore. So for New York City, it means that um, they eliminated a few screens. So the things that barred a lot of students of color from getting into predominantly white schools um, and kept our school system segregated were eliminated. That includes geographic preference, um, which is basically saying that you go to school where you live, which in New York City creates segregation. Um, and they eliminated you know, grade preferences in a lot of schools, test score preferences. Um, and that just means that students have more of an opportunity to go to a school that they really love rather than one that they're zoned for or that they have you know, a particular piece of work to get into. It makes it easier to get into schools, which in theory will make it easier to integrate our schools. I think the other part, so that was a really positive policy change that we saw. The other part that I'm excited about is that young people really can leverage online organizing. Um, for me, last spring, we started working on a youth employment campaign because throughout the pandemic, um, I think budget priorities shifted for the mayor. So he, at the very beginning, decided to eliminate the city's summer youth employment program. Um, again, while retaining the NYPD budget, a lot of other racist institutions. And so that meant that we were left without summer jobs. Um, so we spent the spring shifting from integration, right? We still had people working on that. Um, but really, like in this sort of emergency move to save this program that usually serves 70,000 young people, pays them, gives them service learning opportunities and sort of exciting ways to see themselves and their futures. So for us, we were using Twitter. We were using Instagram. We were using, you know, Zoom platforms. And so that's something that we as young people were pretty good at. Um, I thought our events were fun. We had meetings with council members, which was a lot more accessible for a lot of people. Um, so I think being able to use the platforms that we already use, um, and I think in sort of bold and maybe reckless ways, is really effective um, and has done a lot for us throughout the pandemic, as tragic and inequitable as it has been. So what kind of outcomes have you seen with um, the Project 1424? Yeah. Um, so last spring... The program was canceled in April, and then throughout April, May, and June, we fought to get it restored. Ultimately, we got 35,000 youth jobs back. Wonderful. We had a say in, yeah, we had a say in what the program looked like. So we got to help plan what the orientation looked like, 
how it would work remotely. Um, and crucially, because internet and access to technology is so inequitable, how to make the program equitable and engaging for young people. Um, and so I think that process was iffy. You know, it was the first time any of us had done it. And particularly, like we as young people, I was a high school junior, had no idea what I was doing planning this huge program. Um, but getting that opportunity, getting that voice in this huge program was really important for me and just realizing that, oh, like no one really knows what they're doing and my voice is valid in this conversation. Um, and so moving forward, we're focusing on the mayoral elections. So in November of this year, New York City is going to elect a new mayor. Um, and so until then, we're working with every candidate um, to figure out their youth employment platforms and push them towards one that really empowers youth voice and ensures that every young person has access to a job, to real world learning opportunities, service learning opportunities, and ultimately sort of the opportunity to figure out what they want to do when they grow up, who they want to be. So Carmen is a wonderful um, spokesperson for service learning. And so I'm going to put her on the spot and ask her to draw that connection between youth voice, service learning, and the work in, that you're doing in education equity and youth unemployment. Can you kind of connect the dots for, for folks for us? Yes, I think service learning is sort of a fundamental premise. It's what drives, what I think should drive youth employment. Um, I think if you're going to give a young person a job, it should be something meaningful, something that they have a voice over and real responsibility over. I think that's what makes a job fun and important. Um, but for me, it's, I think my process of whatever this has been, advocacy um, or just figuring out what I think about the world has been service learning because I'm doing something. I'm getting paid to advocate for a program and for young people, um, but I'm constantly learning new skills. So for me, that means that I have an adult ally who helps us coordinate what we're doing, um, figure out what the root causes of every problem we've identified are, sort of turn our own experiences into this bigger argument for a change in our society. And then is helping support us through like making that change through creating new policies, what that should look like. Um, so while we're sort of talking about these really big changes and what we want the world to look like and working between 25 and 40 hours a week on this, um, I'm constantly learning new skills, new things about myself, what I want to do when I grow up. So I think that's the value of both service learning and youth employment. And then ultimately youth voice in what you do um, as a young person or any sort of institution or organization you're a part of. That's perfect. So we're going to take one last quick break, and then we'll come back. We're going to hear some final reflections from Carmen. And again, you're listening to The Power of Young People to Change the World with me, your host, Amy Muirs. And again, you can follow the show on social media at nylcorg or find us at nylc.org. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
For nearly 40 years, the Minnesota-based National Youth Leadership Council has worked globally to transform classrooms, empower teachers, and captivate students by leading the way in providing high-quality, dynamic service learning content to school districts, classrooms, after-school programs, and everything in between. NYLC accelerates student achievement by strengthening academic, civic, and character outcomes through service learning. They tap into the passion, creativity, and ingenuity of all young people to make meaningful change happen. NYLC offers a variety of paths to reach service learning excellence through membership, its annual spring national service learning conference, customized professional development, tools, resources, and soon to be released, Getting Started in Service Learning, a book designed for teachers ready to lead the way to address real-world issues with all young people, inspiring them to serve, learn, change the world. Visit nylc.org to learn more today. The White House Doctor Makes House Calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to The Power of Young People to Change the World with Amy Muirs. To find out more about Amy and the National Youth Leadership Council, please visit nylc.org. Now back to the show. Welcome back to The Power of Young People to Change the World. Once again, I'm here with Carmen Lopez Villamel, and we've been talking about education equity, youth justice, youth unemployment, um, youth adult partnerships, um, a little bit about um, the dynamics of um, young people and adults and youth voice um, in making change. So, Carmen, um, we discussed a lot of different things today. Um, so I would love to hear, um, as we're kind of wrapping up, how can other young people who are listening to the show and are like, I want to, I want to, I want to tackle these issues, how can um, they get involved? Um, what do you suggest um, for young people who, who are like, this is, this means something to me? Um, yeah, that's, that's an exciting thought to me. I think First, shameless plug, NYLC has a few toolkits um, and Youth for Education, a program to sort of walk you through this process. Um, So for me, it started with just talking to a group of my friends about our experiences, about what our education looks like, um, and then figuring out where those come from. So what are the root causes of those inequities? And so again, that's in the toolkit. Feel free to hit us up. Um, But really, like, if if you just get together a group of people, talk about the problem and then tell other people, like plan an event or, you know, share your experiences with adults, with people in power, reach out to them, tell them that you have a voice and that you want to use it. Um, And then create policies for what you think you should do. You know, I think you should feel free to go bananas, you know, 
figure out what you think your school should look like, what you think your school system should look like um, and write it out and bring it to people in power. I think you have an incredible voice um, that you shouldn't be afraid to use. And I think that means like really be bold in everything. Another piece of advice is I would find an adult ally, um, a teacher or a community member, someone who you can talk to about these problems, um, who maybe has some skills that you want to learn and figure out how to bring together a group of people to talk about these issues and to try to do something about them. Um, I think once you can find a group of people who really care and make sure that your groups are equitable, I mean, your voices are heard equitably and um, heard by people in power. I think that's like, you've done it. That's it. Um, I would say if you're in New York City or you're not, but you're curious about Teen Stake Charge, hit up teenstakecharge.com. But it's really sort of, I think the smaller groups just coming together and having conversations that is probably the most powerful part of making change and pretty easy. Start local. So I'm curious, Carmen, um, you've had um, a lot of leadership opportunities and um, have accomplished a great deal through um, the organizations you work with, through the work that you've done with with other students. What have you learned about yourself um, through this journey? Mm. Well, I'll say that I've done very little. I think I've supported a lot of people and worked together with a lot of people um, to do some really cool things. But I see myself as a part of multiple different teams and I think a much bigger movement, which I'm really excited about. I think, honestly, like this is, sorry, I'm going on a tangent here, but I was at this summit the other day where there was a bunch of young people talking about the work that they were doing across the nation. And it felt like this was something that was really changing. Like I think young people are, starting to get institutional voice um, in their schools and in their school systems and nationally, which I'm really excited about. But I think personally, I've learned um, that I think I want to devote my life to empowering other people, to ensuring that the systems that our society relies on to function, function equitably. So they're not just, you know, yeah, complacent, but actively empowering marginalized people. Um, And I think I've learned that I'm I'm a little cynical um, about the world, but I've become more of an idealist. Like I believe that we should fight for what we want in a perfect world. Um, And if it doesn't happen, you know, probably won't, but there's no harm in trying for that, in articulating what you think the world should look like and then fighting for it. Um, And I think that may be just because I'm a young person, but I think that's probably my greatest strength as a young person saying that, you know, I don't really care what the boundaries are, what the historical limitations are to school integration that like, I really believe we need to integrate our schools. Um, And so I think I've learned to be a little bolder in what I believe. um, And also the power of talking to other people, the value in people's lived experiences um, and in youth voice in institutions. A few different takeaways, but all to say that I think I'm really excited to keep working on education equity as a young person and then as an adult, which I shudder to think about, um, to continue 
amplifying young voices. Becoming an adult is not that bad, I swear. (laughs) (laughs) Carmen, I want to thank you for joining me today on The Power of Young People to Change the World, for being our first guest, and for everything that you're doing to make the world a better place for everyone. I have every confidence that you are going to continue on this journey, um, and I'm excited to, um, to see where you go. And, um, and the lives you touch along the way. Um, you can learn more about Carmen um, by following NYLC on social media, again at NYLCORG, or reading our blog, The Generator, which is available at nylc.org. Um, our discussion this afternoon, it's just a glimpse into this ongoing fight um, that so many of our young people are having, um, those sharp divides that not only in our education system, but in our society. You know, tackling root causes of these issues requires the courage and passion and leadership that young people like Carmen have. We can't be afraid to talk about white privilege, the extent of systemic racism, and the legacy of slavery in our country. I think, as I shared at the start of the show, it's only been within the last 60 years that separate schools were recognized as inherently unequal. That means some of our parents or grandparents came through a recognized segregated school system. What we need to acknowledge and address, just like Carmen and the students um, across New York City have done, is that segregation is still an issue today. Again, I want to just reiterate, often we adults struggle with change, um, especially when it comes to young people making that change um, that will impact our communities and our world. But I do want to put out a challenge um, to you adults to think about when you were little and the world was full of possibilities. And what if you had that opportunity to try and make your dreams a reality? That's when the service learning comes in. It supports our young people to learn and grow by using their voice to take actions on issues they care about. Just as Carmen grew as a leader through her service learning experiences starting when she was in elementary school. So next week, we're going to continue our conversation on equity with three young women, Daisy, Coco, and Sunny Letter. There are three sisters from Minnesota who created the Dynamic Champions of Sisterhood, and they're um, addressing racial and religious hatred, um, the decline of mental health of young people, and the marginalization of girls. So DCS really connects young women from across the world, um, helping to build their confidence um, and character, challenge old ideas, and to change the world. So um, until next week, don't be afraid to serve, learn, change the world. We can't wait to have you back. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week to The Power of Young People to Change the World. Your host, Amy Muirs, will return for another program next Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll serve, learn, change the world. 